This is the Personal Finance Show. Welcome to the Personal Finance Show. I'm your host, Bo Humphreys. Randy Cass is a professional investor. After speaking to him for just a few minutes, it's clear he knows investing. Randy spent years as an active portfolio manager, making big money for big pension plans and institutions, managing their investment portfolios using complicated strategies that most people wouldn't understand. An active portfolio manager gets paid based on how well the portfolio does, so it's in their best interest to spend all their time coming up with the best ways to make money. Active portfolio managers work hard, and it's their full-time job, so people don't mind paying them high management fees. But what if you could get the same investment returns without paying the high management fees? What if it turned out that there were passive investments with very low management fees that performed just as well as the high-fee ones? Over time, real data started to prove this was true. The high fees were good for the active managers, but not for the Canadian investors. Randy eventually took a break from actively managing portfolios and became the host of BNN's television show Market Sense. While at BNN conducting interviews and reporting on investment products, he realized that the majority of Canadians were still losing out on so much growth because of high fees, despite the fact that there were so many low-fee options emerging. Randy decided it was time to create a better way to help Canadians grow their money. This is the story of Randy Cass and Ness Wealth. So, Randy, thanks for having me in this office. And I don't know if you know this. No. But I used to work here. In, in this, this building? In this specific unit. Are you kidding me? Who used to be here before us? This used to be Live Nation Global Touring. And what did you do for I, them? I was the manager of Tour Finance. For Live Nation Global You're Tour. You're kidding me. Yeah, for, for the last six years. I, I, I uh, It looks a little different than it did when you were here. You only have half of it. You you uh, So the other half, which you can see through the windows over yep. there, that, we were in that too. So that was the finance back there. And here was uh, legal and ticketing and marketing. That's crazy. And it's just crazy. I hope you don't mind me taking a couple of photos for my, my, co- uh, my not at colleagues all. Uh, later because this is a little bit nuts for me. To be here, uh, it's, I, I can't really look at it as a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> it's fate. It's, it's Your fate. entire life has led to this interview at this well, point in time. Well, you just moved in. Yeah, right? we just moved in on Monday. That, that's crazy, right? And Dave reached out to me last week. That's so great. Well, so I'm here. This is, this is the new Nest Wealth headquarters. Yeah, global headquarters. Global headquarters. Yeah, global headquarters. And this is Randy Cass. Randy is the uh, founder and CEO, yep. right? Is that uh, appropriate title? Perfect. So, um, you know, I want to get into Nest Wealth and what uh, Nest Wealth uh, is and does. But first, uh, I want to know a little bit about Randy Cass uh, from, a, you know, personal finance. How did you, you know, how did you get into this Racket, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but also, it's it's a financial literary, literacy month. Yes, uh, we're, we're we're taping this in financial literacy month. This is, probably won't air until uh, 2018. But um, you know, we all learn about personal finance in different ways, and then however we learn kind of influences where we go. Uh, you know, when did you first learn about personal finance? Go go way as way back as you can think. Well, I mean, I, I always thought uh, I was actually going to be a lawyer, and, and I went to law school and graduated from law school, and then uh, about three weeks, or f- not even that long, one week into my articling year, uh, I was at one of the large downtown Bay Street firms. Um, I, I kind of realized that that I didn't want to be a lawyer, and, and it was an odd time to realize it after you put four years of your life into it, but I remember the incident clearly. It, it was the first weekend. And there's no problem with being in on a weekend, and, and I anticipated that I'd be there for weekends for the next five years. Uh, but I was doing uh, what was called due diligence, which is going through boxes and boxes of files 
and making sure everything was as it should be. And, and in my world, uh, with one week experience, it really meant that the right papers were in the right folders. That was, that was about the extent of what I was supposed to be doing to add value. But on a Sunday morning in the boardroom where I was sitting uh, was a senior partner from the law firm on the other side of the table, clearly adding vastly more value, but in the same room, at the same time, on a Sunday morning, getting paid by the hour. And I looked across the table and I just thought to myself, I don't want a career that 20, 30 years in, uh, this is still going to be um, the type of life that I'm living and the type of responsibility and the type of job that I'm performing. I want something uh, where I can essentially, um, if I'm really, really successful, uh, the payout becomes asymmetric, right? It, it's not, there are only so many hours in the day and I'm going to make that per hour, but if I do an incredibly good job at what I do, uh, the payout can be as large as I could possibly want it to be. And I had just started gravitating towards stocks at that point. Um, I had started gravitating towards trading. I had come out of HBA at Ivy, which, which was the undergrad business program. And so while everybody else was working hard to uh, get hired back from articling, I actually started a stock club. And, at, how, and how do you get into stocks? Like, what does it mean? You're learning, you're reading, or you're... Like we are speculating more than anything else. I remember the very first, uh, the very first stock I think that we ever invested in was uh, in that HBA program. It was Dimples Diaper Company, and it was a penny stock on the Vancouver Exchange. And we're going back to the mid '90s now, and it was supposed to um, have this huge success story based on uh, biodegradable uh, diapers. And and we got into it. I got a couple friends into it with me, and we rode the thing up from pennies to like 70, 80 cents, so seven, eight times what the initial investment was, and all the way back down to like a penny or two, right? And, it's, and as a remembrance of that event, uh, I remember that in, until like even five years ago, I was still getting monthly statements of that account showing, really? yeah, like no value and, and no way to sell the units of the stock because it had been delisted. And, and so it was, a, it was a harsh reminder, but, but you get the bug. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do stocks. I, I kind of ran a stock club while we were articling. I applied to do my MBA. I went back and did my MBA at Ivy. I, got, uh, I, I started my CFA. Uh, and then I ended up going to TD. And the reason I went back to do the MBA was the notion that um, it's easier to get a job that you want uh, if you are being recruited by people than if you're knocking on doors and asking for it. So I thought, I already had the HBA. I could upgrade to the MBA in, in eight months. Uh, and I'd go to a place where all the different firms were coming to recruit. And I ended up uh, taking a job with TD uh, cycling through their trading floor program. Uh, I did the repo desk and I did bonds. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I ended up going over to the derivative desk for currency and trading currency derivatives, which is just a horrible, horrible lifestyle. Like it's even the worst thing you can imagine because if you're the low guy on the totem pole, um, you are getting up to take over from uh, the Asian desk. And, and so because currency goes 24 hours a day. Okay. So I'd be rolling out of bed at 3.34 o'clock, oh, going no. down to the trading floor, being the guy to flip the lights on, be there at 5 a.m. to take over trading. And then when you leave at the end of the day, um, you leave what are called stop losses in all your trading uh, uh, positions. And so that, that's a position where if you, uh, if I bought a, a currency trade at a dollar and I only wanted to risk five cents, I would say, all right, stop loss at 95 cents, which means that if it hit that, you'd get traded out of the position. You don't have to watch it all the time. So you're basically setting up the risk that you want to take. You're, you're setting up the maximum risk that you want to take. Uh, and, and it turns out that at the time, TD actually had a policy in place that when you got stopped out of a trade, the trader would call you. So we would consistently, and I had just gotten married at this time, get woken up at like 1.32 in the morning oh, by man. some foreign trading desk that called to say, you've been stopped out of your trade. So it's bad news. You get w woken up out of a sleep. The phone was on my wife's side of the bed. And it was, it was kind of, oh, Lord. But the truth was, it was phenomenal. Because here you are, um, currency trading is, if stock trading was about finding stocks for decades and decades to hold, currency trading was really about finding something to hold for five minutes. 
Yeah. That, that's, the, the time frames are so short and specific and, and it can whip you so quickly. Uh, so it was exciting. Yeah, I, had a, I had a book that I was trying to make profitable trades on. Um, of course, we were servicing clients. Uh, it, was, it was like um, a video game. Right? Every day there was a score, so you knew exactly how you did. But how, how do you become good at this? What, what makes you good at trading something so, we'll say, volatile, but that changes so fast? I don't know. I couldn't figure out how you made that a sustainable life skill with, with, a, with an educated point of view that would end up winning time and time again. Mm -hmm. Truth is flow. Whoever has the most visibility into the most flow uh, would, would have a good chance of, uh, of doing well. But... Um, I didn't like it. After a while, I just realized that this was very, if, if law was there's no way to get that asymmetric payout, this was, it was exactly what you said, no way to generate skill over an extended period of time. It was all very micro-focused. It was now, 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 now. So you're learning these things as you go. It's the only way. And where did this all point you to? I ended up uh, getting offered a position in the quantitative investment group up at the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Okay. So I had a friend who worked up there. They were looking. I've always had some mathematical uh, skills in, in my background. Uh, and they offered me a position. I went up there and I stayed there for about four or five years. And that was where I really began uh, to form my insights on what it is that um, being a trader, a portfolio manager, someone who invests other people's money uh, responsibly, that's where I learned the foundation of that and began to understand what it was that might work and what it was that didn't work over a period of time. So you're working for the uh, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Your job is basically to make the right decisions so that the pension plan grows yeah. Yeah. over time, maybe even for years and years. Absolutely. It was the exact opposite extreme of currency trading because unlike mutual funds or unlike uh, uh, large public companies that have quarterly earnings, a pension plan has this unbelievable advantage of having an infinite time horizon, not infinite, but, but yeah, decades to achieve value, right? And so... It wasn't like there was a quarterly call where you had to explain what your move was. And I always thought it was such an unbelievable advantage that you could go into incredibly illiquid uh, long-term positions that a vast majority of other capital in the markets just could take no... Because if it was going to take 10 years and the first four years were going to be um, down or flat or uh, risky, but the 10-year horizon looked really good, you couldn't make that bet. People are going to pull out of the yeah, yeah, you'd be lose investors. devastated. You just can't get the normal investor to stick around for that long. So I always thought it was a huge advantage that um, private foundations and, and pension plans and the rest um, never really took as much advantage of as they should have. I worked under an incredible guy uh, named Morgan McKaig, who headed up the group there. Um, it was an incredible learning experience. I rolled out uh, uh, portfolios like uh, the first one. I don't know if your listeners will remember, but um, there used to be this incredibly popular vehicle in the Canadian markets called uh, the Income Trust. And it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the be-all and end-all. And it was essentially a flow-through vehicle where they had to generate uh, a certain amount of yield or dividends based on the income that the income trust earned. And, and utilities were perfectly suited for it. Monopolies were perfectly suited for it. But everybody, as Canadians always do, was looking for so much yield that there was a heyday where everything was becoming an income trust. Like normal companies that had no reason to become income trusts were becoming income trusts because the government had special tax treatment on these things, right? Okay. So Boston Pizza was becoming an income trust. And like these, these companies, it was supposed to be steady state monopolistic income streams and everything was becoming it because of the appetite for it. But what is an income trust exactly? It was, it was just a vehicle that generated a yield because of the preferential tax treatment, but it was mandated to pay out a specific minimum, at least, of the uh, amount of inflows that it earned, right? And so um, 
So kind of it seems guaranteed. It wasn't almost. guaranteed it, it, because almost no, because if the business began to not satisfy the operating requirements, okay. essentially they were giving you your own capital back, right? Okay. And so it was it was kind of like a junk bond in many cases if it was put onto an unsustainable business practice. And then one Halloween night, uh, the government came out and just got rid of eliminated the income track uh, trust tax treatment and the entire industry kind of went to, to heck in a handbasket overnight. But the reason I bring it up is because I was put in a position that was really, uh, under Morgan, incredibly autonomous, had a lot of flexibility, created a, uh, uh, the first um, uh, fund in Canada, the first uh, a way that a pension plan had ever invested in income trust because there were cer certain questions about liability flow through, uh, hedged it off against bonds, ran Statarb, ran RiskArb uh, strategies up there. It was an unbelievably educational, transformational experience of what it's like being a significant player in the equity markets um, with a lot of capital and a lot of resources behind so, you. So you went from trading yeah. to investing, yes. basically. And, and I think a lot of people think to get into investing that they, that they do have to know how to do trading. People, A lot of people think that uh, investing is just buying stocks, going and buying a stock and and then maybe buying it low and selling it high, right? Uh, I think ideally, if you could if, if you, you could, could do that, that'd be that'd be outstanding, right? But that's not that's trading, that's yeah. trading stocks. Like if you're doing it in a short term horizon, yes. and investing is well, well, how how did you know which ones to pick? Well, this is the thing. I mean, we're sitting here at Nest Wealth right now, and this company is entirely passive. So I think the real question is, how do you go from being in the belly of the beast and being an active picker yeah. to starting a company that essentially says, look, passive investing is the absolute way that most Canadians should have their money invested over the long term. And the truth is that, that the numbers kind of backed up, that I had up years, I had down years, we did well, we didn't do well, we got our bonuses. But... but over a period of time, it's become incredibly difficult for any individual to stand in front of the data or the facts and say that there is a defensible edge that I have in picking stocks or creating strategies in this market that will outperform the passive indices. So you're working your butt off for five years at, at Teachers? Yep. To pick the best stuff. Yep. And then at the end of the day, you look at all this and you say, well, the returns that I got aren't necessarily any better than someone who just picked something that mimics the stock market? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, if, take. I don't know if I had that moment of epiphany or realization Not then, exactly, then. but over time you've realized this. Well, so, so what happens then is I get the opportunity to manage external capital, okay. right? We had a good run and, and there are some strategies that work. Um, a closed-end fund arbitrage. Closed-end funds are a relic of the heyday in Canada as well, where uh, you would bundle a fund, you would put it on an exchange so it traded in real time like an ETF, uh, and then you'd blast it out through the advisor network, and the advisors would take a 6 or 7% uh, fee on it or commission on it, and, and all of a sudden it would open at $0.93 cents when it was supposed to open at a dollar, right? And, and they were huge because advisors would be um, generating massive compensation off of these things. But eventually they were very inefficient and, and the net asset value of the holdings of a closed end fund were vastly different than what it traded in. So if you had good technology and you had the ability to kind of generate the right algorithms, you could ARB that. You could ARB the holdings of a closed end fund against what it was actually trading in. Uh, at. You could ARB, they had redemption days, which meant that you could turn around and redeem them to the company that issued them at NAV, at the net asset value, once a year. So if you had a way to track the hundreds of redemption dates and be buying the ones that were under net asset value, and, and then you could turn around and just say, here's everything I bought, I want net asset value, strategies like that worked, right? So if you have the knowledge, which you apparently do, you might be able to outperform the market with... A know, very niche with, strategy. With things like that, but, but the majority of 
people, even, even people who are in the financial industry, don't necessarily know that much, especially if they're starting out. If somebody has sure. a designation, it's really, you know, uh, I, I know there's various uh, investment companies that will promote their, their big their big guy at the top who's like invest with what invest with Joel.com, I yeah. think was one of them. Yeah. And uh, you know, you might even know some of these people, but it's because they've had past success. But does that guarantee no. future success? I mean I mean there there's a reason that every financial document, every legal document that this industry puts out says past performance is no indication of future performance. And, and it's not just because from a regulatory point of view, the industry is mandated to put that out there. It's because it's true. That, that, that significant connection between what you've done in the past dictating how you're going to do in the future doesn't exist. There, there are no objective studies that demonstrate that if you pick the top quintile of portfolio managers over the last five years, you're going to do any better than the passive markets or random over the next five years. And, and that should, in and of itself, demonstrate that this is a lot less of a, um, a lot less of a skilled game than this industry tries to portray itself. So let me give you how the transformation uh, occurs. I, I leave, I start running uh, uh, external capital for some of the firms, high net worth, institutional investors. Um, we're doing well, we're doing these niche strategies like closed end fund arbitrage. Uh, we're trying to figure out another strategy to, to add to the um, funds that we're running. And we think it'd be really, really cool to build a product that generates uh, uh, normalized information from the sell side of the street, from the brokers uh, of the street that are providing the buy side portfolio managers with ideas. People might not know this, but back in the early 2000s, the way the industry worked was I would sit at a desk, hundreds of people would call me a day, each of them would call from a different brokerage house, mid-tier, bulge bracket, boutique. Each of them would have a series of ideas that they think we should be investing our money in. Okay. It, that's, a, that's an unsustainable model, so you end up finding three or four people that you like and you trust and you want to talk to, and the other 97 calls go to voicemail. Right? And maybe okay. you listen to them, maybe you don't. Their job is to get you to listen to their ideas and put trades through their firm. Your job is to get on with your day, work, and do stuff that can add value, so you can't possibly take all these calls. And you're doing research in other ways as well. This For is, sure. This is one of the things you're getting calls and, and, and advice or suggestions, but... Absolutely. You're doing your own internal proprietary research or trying to build a, a foundation for your own portfolio. Yeah. And so we thought to ourselves, what if we built a system, again, this is back in kind of 2003, 2004, so it's, it's oh, 2005, it's right after kind of the dot-com bust that happened in, in the early 2000s. But we said, look, the technology's there. Instead of taking 100 phone calls, what if we build a portal and, and every advisor who wants, every salesperson who wants to reach us can just go in, pound in their idea, we'll mark to market it, which means take the price at which the idea comes in, and they're responsible for closing it out when they want, we'll take the price when it closes out, and we'll build these report cards on each individual that wants to cover us, but more importantly, in aggregate, we'll begin to track sentiment and how it's moving and what stocks people are suggesting in bulk in a way that we thought had never been done before. And so it turns out that as I'm out talking about what we're doing and what we're thinking of building, uh, a bunch of other firms decide that if you build that, we'd love to use it. Okay. Right? Long story short, I end up spinning that piece of technology off into a separate company called First Coverage. We raise a lot of VC money for it. I end up running that for about five years. And if you think about what it was doing, it was asking institutional salespeople to prove that they added value by tracking their ideas in real time, mm. right? And as we were selling the product over a five-year period, it ended up being used by some of the largest hedge funds in, in North America. It was FinTech before FinTech was even a terminology. Uh, the number one question I kept getting asked by institutional salespeople was, well, what if it demonstrates that I don't add value? Yeah, exactly. I, 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 like, to me, I was like, well, that's an odd question. Are you, do you think that's going to happen? They're like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe. And it turns out that we had tens of thousands of ideas going through the system a month, uh, but in aggregate, most of our users couldn't find value from the ideas that were being generated from their sales coverage. But they're charging all millions these and millions fees. of dollars. Yeah. 
So they're charging fees, and then you're able to prove with real data. The opposite of what we wanted to prove, clearly. That's what you like, wanted to prove, but to, to prove that the, the fees weren't adding value, whether you wanted to show that or not. Yeah, and, and I mean, I can't say it wasn't adding value because there were other services, and the ideas might not have been all the value. There sure. might have been phone calls, conversations. There might have been meetings. Who knows? But what it did was all of a sudden start this thought process in my head of, well, and, and this was really kind of before the boom of ETFs and the boom of passive investing, but where is the value add in this industry, right? If we've got everybody putting ideas to our platform and some of the smartest hedge funds and quant guys in the world are combing through this data and they can't demonstrate value, what are we really doing here? And that mm. company ended up being sold in 2011 to a UK company. We did well. But I think my impression of the industry had gone from I'm sitting at my desk, I'm working really, really hard, I'm going to try and add value to my clients to really what are we doing as an industry here if we can't demonstrably, objectively, quantifiably demonstrate to everybody that we're adding value. Might and, as well go back to, to law. Yeah, well, no, that was <laughs> never that bad. But, but it did make me think, like, th there's got to be more to this than that. And then Market Sense on BNN came along, and they were like, do you want to host a show since you've sold your business and, and you don't really have much to do now? And I thought that was a great idea. And when I went on to host Market Sense for a couple of years, the bee in my bonnet just started getting louder and louder. And I would have... Portfolio managers come on, I would have CEOs come on, I would have uh, regulators from the regulatory bodies come on, and I would, I would ask them about these issues. Like, why do you charge the fees you charge if your funds aren't doing better than the benchmarks? Or how do you feel about the fact that each year, 75% of active managers on average will underperform a passive benchmark? That is really their only rationale for being in existence at that point in time. Why are we paying you if someone could go out and buy passive exposure to this benchmark and do better than how you're doing, right? What did they say, um, typically? Uh, it depends who I was talking to, but we had a lot of guests that only came on once, right? Because they didn't, <laughs> they didn't enjoy the process of having their feet held to the fire. And, and I supported kind of the regulators moving to transparency on fees. I supported the notion that um, uh, passive products should, should be kind of brought to market and exposed to a much greater degree. But after a couple years of asking the same questions and doing my own research and realizing that Canada was maintaining its status as the highest feed nation in the country when it came to investment products and reading the data that Vanguard and Bogle were putting out and reading the studies that were coming out uh, of Spiva that talked about um, this number that we said that 75% that in any given year will underperform a uh, passive benchmark. And if you go to five years and 10 years, it gets to the high 90s of mm. percentage. And if you started putting the pieces together that 90 plus percent underperform a passive benchmark over five years, and then to pick the ones that aren't going to underperform, you can't rely on how they did previously. So it's kind of like throwing darts at a, at a, at a newspaper and picking the stock it lands on, I just came to the conclusion that maybe this industry isn't doing as much good for the end investor as we need it to. Um, and after interviewing people for a couple years, it became obvious that maybe it was time to just leave and try and do something about it, and hence, Nest Wealth. And so you decided that you're only going to pick passive investments. Yes. And, and did, did these investments, which are typically ETFs or index funds, uh, depending on, on where you go, did they exist at the time that you started? Or were you having to sort of put all this together? Or did you have a, like a, a kind of a tiny group to pick from? No, I mean, ETFs, uh, and if your readers don't know about ETFs, it stands for exchange traded funds. They're, they're very similar to the mutual funds that, that your readers or your listeners are probably... They are, in fact, classified as mutual yeah, funds. Yeah, with, with a couple differences. And the differences would be, one, um, they were created actually in Toronto, as much as they're a global phenomenon right now. The first ETF ever was created right here in Toronto. And the differences tend to be that um, when the mutual funds 
so there's a fascinating story about how the mutual fund industry became what it is today. I'll get to that in a second. But while mutual funds really focus on um, we are active, smart managers who can beat a benchmark or do better than others can do, um, ETFs take the exact opposite approach. And they're like, look, diversification is a really good thing. Uh, it, it doesn't take much skill to give you the exact same 500 stocks that exist in the S&P 500. So we are going to create an exchange-traded fund that mimics the exact holdings of the S&P 500 by holding the 500 securities in the proper allocations. We are not going to pay someone a lot of money to come in and manage this and try and outperform the S&P 500. We're just going to give you the exposure and the returns of the S&P 500. And because we don't have to pay a lot of costs for a large research team and marketing and a portfolio manager and the rest of it, um, we're going to do it at a vastly reduced price compared to a mutual fund, right? So Because you can just set up uh, a computer program or something to say, what is the S&P 500 doing? And just copy that. Yeah. Right? In, 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 and then balance it, keep it balanced? It, it, it's probably a little simplistic to kind of it, it, let your readers think that that's all. The, or sure, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff there, There's a lot it. of stuff going into it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not the stuff that is very expensive. Yes. Right. Once I, I can't. I, if I were to do it myself, it would take me a lot of work just to do it myself. I would have to go and buy bits of all of these stocks. It would cost me commissions. It would cost me time, lots of time. Right. Right. But and then balancing, re keeping it balanced. So lots, this is what you're. So, so th that's what the ETF industry was set up to do. Mm -hmm. And when you thought for a second that whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're telling me that. I could get the same exposure, more or less, that a Canadian equity fund would give me to Canadian equities, right? Most Canadian equity mutual funds have a large exposure to the same stocks that are in the TSX composite. Um, they might hedge themselves on 5% of the exposure and then overweight themselves on the other 5% of the exposure, and that's the difference. But the middle 90% could be almost identical to the TSX composite, and the average equity fund in Canada will charge you about 2.5%. Okay. 2.5% doesn't sound like a lot, but when you realize that the market's going to return 5 6% maybe in a good year these days, all of a sudden you realize that 50% every year is being paid in fees, and you might be able to hold on to the other 50%. We did a study uh, last year, and um, we looked at what does the average Canadian over the average lifespan with the average income and the average investment portfolio pay in fees, right? Okay. We, we wanted to, using StatCan and all the averages across the board, and it turns out that it is actually the second largest expense in the average Canadian's life. Wow. Right behind a house. So a house is first, but everything else, health, kids, university, cars, go on and on and on, fall below the $331,000 in fees and lost wealth that the average Canadian pays. Wow. And, and how does inflation fit into the fees? I, I mean, if you assume that we're seeing inflation um, devalue the value of a dollar, if you're not keeping up with, if inflation is going along at 1%, 2%, right? Uh, and you're making 1%, 2% after fees, you're barely keeping steady. And, and so, we're in a low inflationary environment right now, which is allowing us to not feel the pain of that. But it, the impact of fees in an inflationary environment becomes even more dramatic, right? So if I have my money just sitting in a high interest savings account right now, yep. which probably is somewhere between 1% and 2% if I'm lucky, yep. more likely just around 1%, uh, I'm actually not making any money. No, mathematically not you're mathematically not. Your balance is going up. But the value of things that you're buying is going up at an equivalent rate. Yeah. So, so in ten years, it'll it'll probably be, it might be worth less to me to buy things. The value of that money, the 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 value of it to buy things will be lower. Yeah, and because and, it stayed the same. And, and that's and that's why a dollar in your pocket today is always worth more than a dollar in your pocket in the future. That's right. Because there's a discount rate associated with it. And in addition, there's inflationary pressure on the things that you're going to want to buy down the road, right? Okay. Um, but you've kind of explained this entire issue that was facing Canadians, which was, I can't keep my money. We've been in this low zero interest rate environment for 
God, it feels like forever now, but mm-hmm. let's let's call it four or five years, right? And, and get interest at all. Yeah, and, and a declining interest rate environment for 20, 30 years, right? And so uh, it used to be easy to make eight to 10% because 4% of your portfolio, or 50% of your portfolio was bonds and that was spinning off four to 5%. I wish. Right? Can't do that anymore. So here was the dilemma that was facing Canadians and why I, I felt so passionate about needing a solution like Nest can't go into safe investments to generate above inflationary returns. I can't keep it in a bank account because that's going to devalue my money over time. And the only thing I could do was really buy into, unless I wanted to manage my money myself, which a lot of your listeners might, but the vast majority of Canadians want nothing to do with this, right? I only had two choices. If I didn't want to do it myself, I could find a full service advisor to handle And the problem in Canada that's been going on over the last decade or so is that the minimum thresholds to get through the door of a full service advisor have been going from 100 to 250 to 500 to, it's not uncommon to need a million dollars in liquid assets to kind of get through the door at some of the full service advisors that exist now. To make it worth their while because it takes a lot of work for them to advice? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing is the cost of servicing continues to go up, the regulatory demands continue to go up, and, and these advisors and their institutions have yet to figure out uh, a way to um, a way to scale the business so that they can provide the personalized touch that they want, and yet um, generate the revenue and fees that they need. So you're looking at firms that are saying, all right, it's a million dollars minimum now because we know that each advisor can only really handle 100 families and we need a certain amount of revenue to satisfy the operations and the regulatory requirements and the rest of it. So that minimum goes up. So you had this entire middle swath of Canadians that between 25000 and a million dollars in investable assets that were being defaulted into these um high fee mutual funds. You'd walk into a bank, you'd walk into somewhere and they would say, look, we see you have a certain amount of assets in your in your checking or savings account. Why don't you buy this fund? And, and it would inevitably be a fund of the institution you walked into. Uh, and it might not be a, a fund that has a very nice MER management expense ratio associated with it. And you mentioned that um, in another, um, in one of your podcasts that I listened to, that there is no real fiduciary responsibility. They just have to make sure that they're not responsible for making sure you're buying the best thing for you, right. just as long as it's a suitable it's product. Suitable. It's suitable. and, and suitability. This, this, this really is one of my biggest issues with the industry as a whole right now, which is that um, there is this resistance that exists between establishing a fiduciary relationship, a fiduciary onus, to always put the client's interest, best interest first um, within this industry. We don't, we don't have it in most of the financial services industry. And, and I think many of your listeners will be surprised by that. Lawyers I, have know, it. I was a bit surprised. I yeah. thought maybe this was something in the past, but you're saying this still no, exists today. No, it, it exists today. And, and um, we have it here at Nest Wealth. We're under a fiduciary obligation. Portfolio managers under the OSC have a fiduciary obligation in common law. But banks, no? But uh, the vast majority of, of the financial services institution has resisted a fiduciary obligation because it becomes very challenging to demonstrate if it's in your best interest to sell you a product that has a 2.5% fee attached to it when there is a product that's an ETF that does a very similar thing with very similar exposure that might charge one-tenth of a percent. And they could probably make the argument either way. We're adding value, we're we're actively looking at this, we have your sort of best interests in mind or best interests of the fund, I suppose. No, it would be be suitability. Right now it's a suitability argument. All they have to make is a suitability argument. That that high-priced fee is suitable for your risk tolerance. If they were under a fiduciary obligation, they would have to say that it's in the best interest to have that. Because suitability, like you said, is about risk. It's not about whether you should be paying higher low fees. Exactly. And and the way the industry's always worked, and the regulatory bodies are getting better at this by by imposing things like CRM2, which demands that on every one of your listeners' statements over 2017, uh, they will have seen um, how much in actual dollars they pay to their advisor or brokerage firms 
Uh, but you said that CRM2 is not necessarily even complete. It's not, because what they won't see, they'll see how much they paid the advisor. What they won't see is actually how much they paid in, in management expense ratios to the funds itself. But that's what I wanted to be on the statements in the first that's place. That's what we all want it to be. What? Everybody wants it to be. Because there's a large percent, not everybody, but those who want to make this industry as transparent and clean as possible want those fees out front need them out front because everybody says we have a savings problem in Canada and that individuals um, are, are going to have an incredibly challenging time reaching their financial goals. And that's absolutely true. There's, there's no doubt about that at all. But the real problem, I think, might be the fees issue, right? You take a 2.5% fee, cut it in half, and all of a sudden you've added $150,000 to where an individual average, on average, is going to end up in Canada. That's something we could do. Maybe right? you can retire earlier, or may maybe you can even determine you can save a little bit less and spend a little bit more in your life. However, over time, money. The biggest, the biggest problem I think we got into uh, was when investing um, during the '90s and, and the early 2000s, and you can even see it now, uh, has become an end in of itself as opposed to a means to an end, right? Money, and, and this is how we regard money at Nest Wealth and our, our clients' investments, it is a means for them to achieve something that they want to achieve with their life. Um, it is a way for them to find purpose um, that necessitates some kind of financial contribution. It is not a means in and of itself for them to have a scorecard to compare to someone at a cocktail party about whether they were in the latest hot stock or not, right? right. And so when we lost our, our, our sight, our rationale, our focus, that that was what investing was all about, it became something that became very dangerous. And it became something that lured people to certain firms and certain products based on the notion that these guys are going to make me a lot more money a lot quicker than other guys. Uh, and the truth was very rarely did that actually come, come to be. So what uh, is your fee model at Nest Wealth? Yeah, so, so what Nest Wealth did was, if you remember the, the situation that we just explained, where the average Canadian was either going to have to uh, do it themselves or pay on average 2.5% to have a mutual fund manage their money for themselves, uh, we said that's completely wrong. And we said the way that this industry has finally coalesced, that there are thousands and thousands of low-cost passive ETFs that are tradable, uh, there are um, lots and lots of objective documentation, white papers, Nobel Prize winning theories on the best way to construct portfolios and the best way uh, to do diversification uh, and, and uh, assume a certain amount of risk for um, what you're willing to take on. Uh, and that all of a sudden the technology existed so that um, you could do all these things and offer that optimized portfolio creation, management, monitoring for each individual uh, at really dramatically different asset levels than ever has been done before, we said, well, let's bring the best practices of institutional investors down to retail investors and offer it at a flat fee. So Nest Wealth um, never charges more than $80 a month for full wealth management, uh, regardless of how much money people have in their accounts. And, and so we'll have people with millions and millions of dollars in their accounts paying us $80 a month to put together a customized portfolio of low-cost ETFs, to manage the portfolio that's held in their name at National Bank, to rebalance when it needs to be rebalanced. Um, we do everything, I would say, at a level equivalent to the most sophisticated institutions in Canada when it comes to portfolio construction, using those same Nobel Prize winning theories that uh, have been the underpinning of this industry for decades and decades. But we do it in a way that puts hundreds of thousands of dollars that would have been lost to fees back into the pockets of our clients. Because if they, so your fee is flat, but the, there's still uh, management expense ratios in these ETFs. In the ETFs. But they're, they're very tiny. What On would, average. What would be the, the max average for, uh, for a portfolio? We don't have default portfolios. We actually okay. do create custom customized portfolios. portfolios for each individual. I like that. And, and one of the things that's really uh, a special about the Nest Wealth process, and your client, your your listeners can do this at nestwealth.com, is 
you can do the entire thing online. You can do, you can go through the KYC, the know your client process online. You can get your portfolio generated online. You can see what the holdings would be. You can do all the account opening and documentation through digital signatures online. Um, you will have a portfolio manager here at Nest Wealth that you can talk to. You can come by the beautiful new offices and sit where you're sitting. And it's pretty nice here. And, but you don't have to. It's all about convenience and transparency and, and the assets end up getting held in your name, in an account, separate and apart from Nest Wealth. We never actually touch the assets. Um, but the way that the portfolio is constructed is instead of using products that would have cost 2.5%, these mutual funds that we spoke of through this uh, entire recording, the ETFs we use from Vanguard and BlackRock uh, cost 10 basis points, 11 basis points, so one-tenth of a percent. So right away, wow. we're, we're never the firm that's going to promise we have the secret sauce and we know what to do that others don't. Well, anyone it, does is probably just taking a huge guess. Yeah, based on the first half hour of our conversation, that's I right. hope I've convinced your readers that that is a dubious claim for anyone to make. Uh, readers, I keep saying readers. God, I'm old school, right? Uh, they're going to read part of this. Okay. Um, <laughs> But what we will say is, look, if you've decided that based on the current situation, you have assets and you want those assets exposed to the markets because you need them to grow and you are willing to take the volatility that comes with having exposure to a diversified portfolio of different asset classes, we use seven different asset classes, then the simple, simple mathematics of ending up paying 20, 40, or $80 a month plus 10 basis points, as opposed to paying 250 basis points on a consistent annualized basis, means that you will inevitably, regardless of if the markets go up, down, or sideways, do better with a Nest Wealth account because of the amount you save in fees than you would do with a traditional mutual fund account. And that, to us, has been a rallying cry that thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians have reacted to incredibly positively. So it seems like a great deal for, for the million dollar account. What about the, the people who are just starting out? What so, if I have five or $10,000? So look, we, we will put together because we think everybody needs this type of uh, account and this type of service. If you have less than $10,000, um, come to Nest Wealth. We'll put together a simplified uh, a portfolio for you. We'll manage it. It'll be free. You won't have to pay us anything. Uh, and, and you will at some point make a determination uh, if you want us to be a bigger part of your portfolio in life going forward. But the average, and if you're up to $75,000, we'll start you at $20 a month. If you go up to $150,000, it might be $40 a month. And then everything above that's capped at $80 a month, right? That being said, our average client, this is not, as the media might have portrayed it, a millennial story. It's not a story that only young people are flocking to. Um, the ones that are feeling the incredible pain points right now are those that actually have some substantial assets or money put aside already and are paying tens of thousands of dollars in fees that exist right now. And so our average client here at Nest Wealth uh, has $175,000 with Nest Wealth. They're 47 years old. Uh, the baby boomer demographic is our second largest demographic here at Nest Wealth. It, our belief, and, and it's been proven out, is that if you come to market with a product that is more transparent, uh, it, it costs a heck of a lot less, it is as sophisticated, if not more sophisticated than the way portfolios have been constructed, it is more convenient, um, that is not a story that young people are just gonna be attracted to. That's a story that anyone who wants their wealth to last as long as possible or accumulate the maximum amount will be attracted to, and that's exactly what we found out. Well, I think that's a great philosophy. Um, that's probably a good place to end this. I know you, uh, you have a busy day. I, I got to let you go. So what do people um, do if they want to sign up? Oh, well, just look, um, come to nestwealth.com uh, and, and go through. Uh, there's an incredible FAQ we have. You can chat with us online uh, whenever you want. We can reach out to you or you can reach out to us on the phone. Um, go through it. See how much you're paying in fees. We have a mutual fund calculator that you can put in your current holdings and get a sense really of how much it's costing you. We have mm. a, a goal projector where you can say how I'm 42 and I'm saving for a home and I want to buy it in 10 years or I'm saving for retirement in 20 years, whatever. Get a sense of what difference this will make in your life. Uh, get comfortable with the fact that your assets are held in your name. Get a sense of 
um, what our service is like, go through. But if you want, you just go to nestwalk.com and the entire process can be handled online. And uh, for, your, for your listeners, where it says, how did you find out about us as you're kind of halfway through the process, um, we'll, we'll put uh, the podcast name in, in the drop-down menu. And if they pick that, we'll even give them three months to try us out without us charging them any fees at all. That sounds great. And, and you have a podcast coming out. Uh, yeah, we do. And uh, I think it might be out by the time uh, this, hits, uh, this hits your listeners. Um, we're super excited about it. Uh, uh, the first interview, we're going to be interviewing a bunch of, uh, uh, of people that have found success in different ways, whether financially or um, in ways that might be uh, a little more uh, uh, esoteric or personal. Uh, and we're going to try and get across, just like you do, uh, a little bit about their journeys, a little bit about how they found success. Our first, our first one that they can find uh, is with uh, Mike Weckerly uh, from Dragon's Den, who anyone involved in Canadian investing and personal finance knows that he is um, one of the most famous traders, if not the most famous trader this country's ever produced. And uh, we dig into his life and the ups and downs and, and the lessons that people can learn from, uh, from someone who really has seen absolutely everything in this industry. Well, that sounds great. I'll look forward to that, and I'll put a link to your podcast That'd be great. in the show notes. Uh, thanks for having me here at uh, Nest Wealth in my former office, which <laughs> is still weirding me out, just looking around at the elevators and the atrium. You know, we'll have you on again to, to I, talk I, about yeah, more stuff. Yeah, there's so much more we can talk about, but thanks exactly. for making the time. Thanks, Randy. And that's episode 15 of the Personal Finance Show. Thanks again to Randy for inviting me to the new Nest Wealth headquarters. Randy's new podcast is called, And Then What Happened? You can find it on iTunes or by clicking the link in the show notes. To get those three months without fees that Randy mentioned, be sure to click on one of the Nest Wealth links in the show notes. Next week on the show, I have Stephen Wayman of the popular personal finance blog, howtosavemoney.ca, and we will be discussing his new site, creditcardgenius.ca. If you enjoy listening to The Personal Finance Show, please show your support by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. No time for a review? Just leave me a star rating. It takes only two seconds on iTunes. Investwisely.ca is where you can find all the show notes and links and, of course, all of my blog posts. I'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to send me an email at bow at investwisely.ca. 